My name is Paul Mumon, the lead pastor at Genesis. I have the privilege of spending time at both of our campuses and always love being able to come over here. And I've been really excited to see the transformation. I've seen some of the pictures and videos this week. I love how this room has changed and the things that are going on out in the lobby and there's more to come. And so we're excited uh, about the next few months and uh, it's fun to see things come to life and to see this refreshing. But I'll tell you that while I'm excited to see all of it, um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here with you. And I love what the Lord is doing here at our Carmel campus. I really believe something very special is happening here at this campus right now. And I want to thank you for being a part of it. I want to thank you for your generosity so we can do things like this. But I love that you and I, that all of us together, we're just working hard to share uh, the hope of Christ, uh, to let others know that there is a way through this world and it is through Jesus Christ. And so thank you for being a big part of it with us. Thanks for your prayers. Uh, thanks for loving people so well. Thank you for welcoming new people that are coming. And uh, let's keep moving forward together because it's going to be really exciting to see uh, how the Lord continues to use each of us uh, and this church. Um, I wonder if any of you, and uh, this would be true of you online watching in, I wonder if any of you have ever accidentally sent the wrong text message to somebody. Have you ever done this before? Had this happen by accident? Like uh, maybe you meant to tell somebody that, hey, you look really pretty today, but it auto-corrected to pregnant for some reason, you know? Like you can see, right, the mix-up, the messaging there can get everything wrong, or maybe you sent the right message to the wrong person, like something meant for your girlfriend, uh, ended up sending to your mom instead, and maybe it was a little bit about your mom too, and so uh, that can be a little confusing and difficult to work through, or maybe you've been misunderstood before with, with a text, you're just trying to get to the point, be very clear about something and, well, you got to blame brevity and uh, maybe some of the misunderstanding that came from that. Have you heard the story about the government official who accidentally told the world that Hawaii was under a missile attack? This is a true story. Uh, you might remember seeing it in the news. It happened about four years ago back in uh, 2018. You think you've had a bad day. Check this out. Uh, it was a training exercise uh, to check the early warning system for potential missile attacks against the U.S. And it was during one of these exercises that one employee who believed the alert was real pushed the wrong button, basically, sent the wrong message instead. How big of a mistake? He alerted all of Hawaii and most of the world that the USA was under attack and should take cover immediately. The message went through the emergency alert system, and this is what popped up on phones in Hawaii. Ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii. Seek immediate shelter. This is not a drill. And for those living in Hawaii, it was a terrifying moment. Uh, friends and family called one another to say goodbye. There were people who started looking uh, for places to take cover, hiding and storing away food and, and water to, to be safe. You can imagine that there were critical communications taking place at the highest levels uh, of our nation. Thankfully, but not before some frantic moments, reports were quickly issued that it was a false alarm, the wrong message, a huge mistake. Now, I've made some mistakes in my life. You've made some mistakes in your life. I can remember one job mistake that I made when I was in high school. I worked for a delivery company, and I may have put diesel fuel in a truck that only takes unleaded fuel. And I'll just say this truck was on its last leg anyway, but I did it in, all right? That truck never knew a day basically in the days to come. That guy in Hawaii got fired. Thankfully, I didn't. I managed to survive in that job. And the truth is this. The truth is that if you've ever 
ever failed at something before. And I'm sure we all have. Like, you know how devastating and how embarrassing our mistakes can be. Popular writer Bob Goff says this about our mistakes and their impact uh, on us. He says, if you're like most people, I bet you remember way more mistakes you've made than your successes along the way. We all fail. We've all made mistakes before. Sadly, though, our past mistakes and regrets have the tendency to follow us around. Uh, They hold us back. Uh, they can beat us up. They can, they can really, if you allow them, they can become your identity. But that's the marvelous thing about Jesus. Uh, Jesus in your life means that nothing else gets to define you. Uh, what, what others say about you doesn't matter. That your, your past mistakes don't have to determine the course and the direction of your life. Because we serve a God, as Jerry talked about, that is making all things new. He is a God that can redeem any life and any mistake. And it doesn't matter what you've done in your life. There is nothing that is too great for him. And today, we're going to look at the wonderful story of the resurrection and also a woman by the name of Mary, Mary Magdalene. She had a past. If you know her story, she certainly made some mistakes in her life, but then she ran into Jesus. She encountered Jesus, and that encounter with Jesus is going to change everything for her. And so John chapter 20 today, if you've got your Bible and you want to follow along with us, uh, we've got three weeks left in the book of John. We've been in John most all of this year. And uh, when we talk about the gospel of John, that there are four books that begin our New Testament, the second half of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We often refer to them as the gospels. The word gospel just simply means the good news. These are four eyewitness accounts, all right, from individuals that watched Jesus, that listened to the stories of Jesus, and they have copied down these words and these accounts for us. And, uh, and so we've been studying these together, looking at the stories of Jesus, the words of Jesus, all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give an account of a woman, of women, excuse me, going to the tomb where Jesus' body was placed early in the morning, the day after the Sabbath. However, all four Gospels have some slight variances. Some include more details than others. In the Gospel of John, or excuse me, in all the Gospels, there is one woman that is mentioned in all four, and that is Mary. That's Mary Magdalene. Who was she? Well, she was from the village of Magdala. Her last name's not Magdalene. It's actually the place where she's from. Magdala is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Luke chapter 8 verse 2 says that Jesus healed her of seven demons. Why seven? Why are we given that number? Well, seven in the Bible is a number that symbolizes completion, which leads us to believe that her life was a mess that she was completely and absolutely under the control and the influence uh, and, and power of the demonic world. You could say that she was sick, but then she encountered Jesus. He healed her. He set her free from her past and her pain. She too became a follower of Jesus and was often found and is often mentioned with the other disciples when they're with Jesus. She was at the cross, all right? So she watched Jesus die. And as far as she knew, or anyone else for that matter, it was all over that, again, she witnessed Jesus' death on the cross. And even though Jesus talked about his death, no one really believed or really understood what he meant by his resurrection. And so no one was going to the tomb on that Easter morning expecting to find Jesus alive. 
John records this in John chapter 20, verse 1. He records that morning. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, here's a picture of a similar tomb in Israel. This is not Jesus' tomb, but this is what the tomb would have looked like. Many believe the tomb that you can see in, uh, just outside of Jerusalem today, and it's one that you can see that has the rolling stone that can cover the entrance. John notes, if you look back at verse 1, that it was the first day of the week. We know that Jesus died and was buried on a Friday. For the Jewish people, Saturday is the Sabbath. Some scholars suggest that John's emphasis of the first day of the week is a reference. It's John's way of saying also that it's not just Sunday, but that it's a new day. This is a new beginning. The resurrection of Jesus launches a brand new creation. The curse, which started in the garden, has been remedied. In fact, play close att- pay close attention to some of the garden language that John continues to use in this chapter. But why is Mary Magdalene going back to the tomb? Why is she going back there early in the morning on this first day of the week? Well, she's going to anoint Jesus' body. She is going to continue the work of preparation, his corpse, for its final burial because Jesus needed to be buried before sunset on Friday because we believe that he was crucified in the afternoon, but Friday sunset is when Sabbath begins. You can't do that kind of work after sunset. And so they're likely rushing on Friday to start some of this preliminary work, but then Sabbath takes place on Saturday. You can't go there then either. And so Sunday has come and she's going back to the tomb to continue this work, this preparation. But when she arrives to the tomb, that she discovers the stone has been removed. And as verse two reveals, the body isn't there. And if Friday wasn't already horrific enough, now there's this. And as we'll see in the coming verses, Mary Magdalene will really come undone at the tomb. But if you've ever If you've ever been overwhelmed by grief, if you've ever gone through great disappointment, if you've ever endured and lived through a tragedy, like... Like maybe but you can relate to Mary Magdalene. Like we've we've all like Mary, we've all got a Friday in our lives, don't we? I mean, we've all got a Friday when when things really changed, when maybe all of your hopes were shattered. Like if you prayed for something and then things only got worse. Or your marriage came to an end and you didn't really see it coming. Or your parents got divorced and you've, you've lived with that pain. You've lived with that hurt. Like somebody maybe took advantage of you and hurt you. Or maybe you made a choice, you've made a mistake, and you've never been able to forgive yourself. I think that's a little bit of what Mary's experiencing here at the tomb. Friday was devastating, but I just wonder if there was some part of her past that was threatening to come rushing back in. Because our past mistakes can be funny like that, can't they? They have this way of creeping back into our lives. They have the tendency to to follow us around every once in a while. Again, they'll just come rushing back to us. Look at how Mary responds in verse 2. John writes, so she left. She went running 
She went away from the tomb to find Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So she runs to find two of Jesus' disciples. One is noted as Peter, the other we believe is John. That John refers to him as the, in the third person, himself as the third person in this text, frequently calling himself the one Jesus loves. So Mary goes to them with the message, the body is gone, somebody has taken him. Look at how Peter and John react. Verse three, it says that, so Peter and John, they, excuse me, Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Basically, they take off running for the tomb. They're confused, all right? And so they take off, leaving Mary behind. And I want you, here's what I want to do. I want to read these next few verses for you. And I want you to note the language that John uses to describe their rush, their race, if you would, to the tomb, Peter and John because it's actually pretty amusing. Let's pick it up in John chapter 20, verse four. Look what John writes. He says, both were running. That's John, he's writing, and Peter. But the other disciple, because again, he refers to himself in the third person, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along, behind him, in case you haven't picked up that detail, and went straight into the tomb as well. He continues verse 7. He says, he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. I loved the comedy going on here, this competition, if you would, between Peter and John. And John wants to make sure that for all of history, everybody knows he got to the tomb first. All right, he beat Peter to the tomb. And I just love that. And I love even the realness that we see in them. But there's more going on here than just race results. Because notice the details, if you would, too. The description of the scene, the strips of linen, the cloths lying there, the cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus' head. Dr. Gary Burge is really an expert on the Gospel of John. He explains how the details here in these verses are meant to show us that this is not a scene of confusion or a scene of chaos, that Jesus' body was not taken. No, something purposeful has transpired in this place. That Peter went in first, and then John after, and when they examined the scene, notice the words that John saw and he believed. There are at least three Greek words for to see. The one used here is the Greek word orao. It means to see and comprehend. It means to see and to understand. In other words, John is putting all of the pieces together. He examined the scene with his own eyes and he believed. He believed that Jesus' body wasn't taken, that he's not dead somewhere else, that he's alive. John was the first to believe and he believed without actually seeing Jesus. Verse 10, it says, Peter and John went back to where they were staying. Now, I don't know how they missed Mary Magdalene on the return trip. We don't know for sure, but now Mary is coming back to the tomb as well. And John picks up again with her account in verse 11. He says, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now, the Greek word for crying here means to weep or to wail, as was customary in this culture. It's the same word used to describe what Jesus did outside the tomb of the body of Lazarus. But Mary Magdalene isn't just trying to create a scene here. Like, the point is that she's hurting. Uh, she very likely has to be thinking, why? 
Like, why did this have to happen? Why, why Friday? Why this now? Like, why God? Like, why did this have to happen to Jesus? Why did it have to happen to us? Like, why did he have to die? Like this man who made the blind see, this man who made the lame walk, the one who brought the dead back to life. Like, why did he die and why is he gone? Like, certainly she's reflecting at the same time on everything that Jesus has done for her, her her deliverance from the demons, the fresh start in life, a new reason to live. Like, Jesus freed her from it all. And now that which had previously tormented her threatens to come rushing back in, at least the despair, the fear, the abandonment, the disappointment. Pick it up in verse 11. John writes, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, at this she turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but here's an important detail. She did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, for some reason, the angels don't startle her, which I don't completely understand why. That, that doesn't bug her a little bit. Why didn't she recognize Jesus though? Like, was it dark? Remember, it was early in the morning. I mean, maybe look, Jesus looked different. Uh, was she potentially so overwhelmed by emotion that she wasn't comprehending or seeing things clearly? We don't know. But I'll tell you what I like to imagine Jesus in this moment. Because if Jesus anguished over the cross, I can only imagine how he eagerly anticipated his resurrection and encounters, personal encounters like these. And so look what Jesus says. He looks at Mary Magdalene as John writes, and he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Which is a dangerous question, Jesus. Like you should know better to ask a woman that question, right? But uh, he's Jesus, so he can do what he wants. He says, who is it you're looking for? And then here's this garden language. John writes, thinking he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. She thought he was a gardener. Remember, John has been using this garden language all throughout his gospel to connect Jesus' story back to the first garden that we see in Scripture in Genesis, the Garden of Eden. Oh, by the way, the place where sin first entered the world. And Mary Magdalene asked the man who she believes is the gardener, do you know where my Savior is? And then I'm sure Mary in all of her life will never forget, has never forgotten this next moment and these next words, specifically one word, because Jesus looked at her and called her by name, saying, Mary. If we stop there for just a moment and try and put yourself in her shoes, when you think about it, Mary has a decision to make. She has to decide why is the tomb empty? Did, Jesus did somebody take Jesus' body? Is this some kind of cruel joke or is Jesus really alive? And you know what? At some point in your life and in my life, like every single one of us has to make the decision. We've got to answer for ourselves the question, is it true? Is it true? Is Jesus alive? Did he really rise from the dead or is this one big cover-up and hoax still misleading people 2,000 years later? I love the words and the ministry of the late Charles Colson. He's a scholar, powerful, 
expert in apologetics, had a great ministry of prison reform and leading prisoners to Christ, not only in America, but in different parts of the world as well. But before he met Jesus, he was someone else. And he tells his story because Charles Colson was convicted for his involvement in the Watergate scandal as an assistant to President Richard Nixon. And here's what Colson writes about the resurrection its impact, and how we respond in difficult moments. He says, when I'm challenged on the resurrection, thinking about it, whether it's true or not, my answer always is that the disciples and 500 others, according to the scriptures, gave eyewitness accounts of seeing Jesus risen from the tomb. But then I'm asked, how do you know they were telling the truth? Like maybe they were uh, perpetuating a hoax. My answer, he says, comes from an unlikely source, my experience with Watergate. Colson writes, Watergate involved a conspiracy perpetuated by the closest aides to the president of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did it only two weeks after informing the president what was really going on. Two weeks. Colson points out the cover up the lie could only be held together for two weeks and then everybody else jumped ship to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all of those around the president were facing embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Put yourself in their shoe. Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, and execution. Every single one of the disciples, to their dying breaths, insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus' body raised from the dead. Don't you think one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned, that one of them would have made a deal with the authorities, but none did? He says, men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. No one will give their lives for something they believe to be false. The Watergate cover-up reveals the true nature of humanity. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power will in the crunch save their own necks, even at the expense of the ones they profess to serve so loyally. But the apostles, the apostles could not deny Jesus because they had seen him face to face and they knew he had risen from the dead. He finishes saying, no, you can't. You can take it from an expert in cover-ups. I've lived through Watergate that nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus Christ indeed is Lord. That 2,000 years later, nothing less than the power of the risen Christ could inspire Christians around the world to remain faithful despite prison, despite torture and death. Jesus is Lord. That's the thrilling message of Easter. It's a historic fact, one convincingly established by the evidence and one you can bet your life upon one that you can bet your life upon. Mary went to the tomb looking for the body of her dead friend. Peter and John did the same, but they didn't find Jesus' body there. He wasn't in the tomb, and it's not because he had been taken. And suddenly, to Mary's amazement, she's now standing, as John records, face-to-face with her Savior. He called her by name. That got her attention and reminds us of some important words that Jesus spoke that John also records a handful of chapters earlier in John chapter 10 when Jesus said the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. See, disciples 
followers of Jesus understand and respond to the voice of Jesus. Jesus called her by name. She recognized his voice. This savior who had once rescued her from her past pain and mistakes now once and for all has guaranteed her future with his resurrection. And look at her response. John records, John 20, verse 16. She turned toward him and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She responded to him, Rabbi, teacher. She's overcome with emotion. She thought Jesus was dead and gone, but he's alive. Jesus continues, verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is Jesus' way of saying, Mary, I'm not leaving, all right? So don't cling to me too tightly. Something indeed special has happened and I'll be leaving soon, but not just yet. And then Jesus tells her what to do next. He's got a very special assignment for her. He continues saying, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Mary Magdalene's assignment given by Jesus is a really, really big deal. And here's why. Because in ancient societies like this one, the testimony of a woman had no weight, no credibility And that's part of what makes Mary Magdalene's testimony so important. Dr. Gary Burge says this about Mary's testimony here and what Jesus asked of her. He said, you know, women rarely, if ever, enjoyed the status of courier or messenger in the ancient world, much less legal witness for critical events. Mary's commission to run and speak is a deep honor that Jesus gives her alone. And I guess the point is this, that if you're Jesus and you're John and these disciples, and you're trying to get a movement, a hoax, a cover-up off the ground, why in the world would you ever make up a story with the primary witness being a woman unless it's the truth, unless it's precisely as it happened? And isn't it just like Jesus to take the important message of his resurrection and entrust it to someone like Mary Magdalene? She received the message first. She got to deliver the message first. Call Mary an apostle to the apostles. And 2,000 years later, you know what? We're still talking about Jesus. And 2,000 years later, men and women and students and children have given their lives on the account of a historical fact that the tomb is empty and that our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is alive. Here's what I want to ask you this morning. I I wonder what kind of disappointments, uh, regrets, and mistakes that Jesus has helped you overcome. Like, how is he changing your life and influencing the way you think about your life today, but also in the life to come? Maybe you would say, you know what, he's in process with me because he's in process with me. He's still got a lot of work to do, but if you're learning to trust, you know, is, is Jesus at work in your life and he's trying to heal? And, and you would say, you know what, I haven't yet arrived yet, but something good is happening in me. And you know what, Jesus is at the center of it all. Like Mary, if we're not careful, we can get stuck in a Good Friday sort of a world, one that is full of discouragement and disappointment. We, we get stuck. We, we can't find our way through. Mary had a past. Uh, her mistakes and her former ways could have easily rushed back into her life. I'm not sure what the, the, the struggle or the disappointment may be that haunts you. Maybe it's a, a marriage that has failed. 
Uh, Maybe it's a a career or a dream that never became a reality. Maybe you're struggling with some difficulties in your health or someone that you love. If if you've made some past mistakes and and choices that keep sneaking back in your life, maybe the struggle for you is hurt or or disappointment in others. It could be hurt or disappointment in, in the church, some church. Maybe you would just say, you know what, I'm disappointed with God right now. If we're not careful, we can get stuck in Friday, a Friday kind of a world. But I'm here to tell you today that it's Sunday. Jesus, the the, the tomb is empty. Like Jesus is here. And maybe part of the reason he has you here today, maybe part of the reason that you're watching online right now is that you might hear him call your name today. Mary Magdalene put her faith and trust in the formerly crucified, now resurrected Jesus Christ. And because of his love and his grace and her faith, well, she is a new creation. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if anyone is in Christ, when you trust Christ, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here and has arrived. See, trusting Jesus means you are a new creation in him. The old is gone, the new is is here. Have you trusted Jesus with your life? Could today be the day you trust Jesus with your life? The old is gone. The new is here. But there's one more thing that I want to point out in this text before we sing. Remember, Jesus sent Mary out with the news. And not just Mary, but all of the disciples. In fact, the rest of the New Testament talks about our role and responsibility as followers of Jesus to share the news of his resurrection with the rest of the world. We see it in several places. I'll point out a couple. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came to them, all right? After the resurrection and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, all right, and teaching them, he continues, everything that I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. A few days later, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before he ascends into heaven, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, my couriers, my messengers in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I like this one too, one more, Acts chapter 13, verse 47, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was Jesus' mission, all right, for Mary, his mission to the disciples. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's his mission and message for you and me too. But I want to leave you with this question today with all of that in mind. And the question is just simply this, what message is your life sending? What are you communicating to others? Because if we're not careful, our words, our actions, the way that we live can send a lot of mixed messages to the world. In the same way, our words, our actions, the way we live, the way you love has the potential to send a very powerful message. Jesus sent Mary out, assigned her the task of telling others about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has the very same assignment for you and for me today. What message are you sending 
with your life? What do people see in you when they look at the way that you live? What do people see in you when they look at the way you play and the way you work and the way you lead? Like how about the way you love, the way you treat others, the way you forgive? Because if we're not careful, if we're not intentional, we can send the wrong message. But when we remember who we are, who our Savior is and what He accomplished, why we're still here, we've got the potential of sending a message that declares Jesus is alive and by His blood in the empty tomb, we are healed. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you that the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, that by his stripes and his wounds, we have been made healed or been made well. And we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, we're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. And sometimes the evil one loves to rush into our minds and bring up the old things, the former things. But I pray he would have no way in our lives today that you would use today, Lord, in a powerful way to remind us that we belong to you and are being sent out by you. Remind us that we have a role and a responsibility in everything that we do to declare the message that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, and through him we can be healed. And I pray, Lord, I pray for that person that you might have here today, that person that's listening right now that has never trusted you as their Savior and Lord, that today might be that day. Have your way in their lives and in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.